This week, we're gonna close out this series with humility, and uh, this may be uh, part one. We may come back for a sequel version of this series because we've really barely scratched the surface of the topics that the book of Proverbs addresses. Um, We could take a look at the topic of marriage. We could take a look at the topic of life and death and how to wrestle with death. Um, We could take a a look at a number of things, work, career, vocation, how uh, the gospel speaks into that, um, and so forth and so on. Um, But for now, uh, we're going to talk about humility as a bookend this morning to this series. Um, And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to uh, Proverbs chapter 18. Verse 12, if you don't own a Bible, there should be one underneath uh, one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. We'd love to know that you're exploring the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. Um, Even as you're opening up this morning, we just sang a phrase that um, I, I think James has even explained it in the past, but... For those of you who may not have been around on that particular Sunday, uh, here I raise my Ebenezer. You ever wonder what that means? For those of you who maybe haven't heard that unpacked before, what in the world are we talking about there? If you go back to uh, 1 Samuel, uh, you find Samuel and the Israelites up against the Philistines in a battle, and it doesn't look good for the Israelites, for God's people. And so they ask Samuel to pray for them, and he does. He goes to the Lord in prayer and asks God to deliver His people, and God does so. The Israelites emerge victorious over the Philistines, and in the wake of that victory, Samuel grabs a rock, a a memorial commemorative rock, and lifts it up to the Lord and calls the rock Ebenezer, which means God is my help. So that's the idea behind that. When you say, Here I raise my Ebenezer, you're saying, I'm dependent upon you, God. You are my help. I can't do this without you, which has everything to do with where we're going this morning as we talk about humility. So from now on, when you sing that song, if you haven't heard that before, you now know that you're essentially saying, God, I'm dependent on you. I cannot possibly do this thing called life on my own. So here we go. With that being said, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 12 says this, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Let me pray for us. Humility, God, we, we are all the most humble people that we know, so this should be quite easy for us this morning. Um, that is obviously a joke, Lord. We are, we are not humble. We struggle with humility all the time. Uh, we want to sit on the throne of our lives. It's been a part of the story of redemptive history since the very beginning with our first parents in the garden, and really before that, if you go back to the very sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven, um, God, we can't possibly even scratch the surface of Uh, what the Bible teaches about pride and humility this morning. But I do pray that what we are able to tackle this morning would make much of you and would cause us to find ourselves more dependent upon you, to see Jesus as ultimately the hero, not ourselves in this story that you are authoring. Um, God, would you help us? Holy Spirit, only you can do that work. Apart from you, uh, we will walk in arrogance. We will uh, attempt to function as the center of this story uh, rather than seeing you as the center. So help us, Holy Spirit. Come and open our eyes to see this morning the things that we are blind to even now. Open our hearts to receive that which you have for us. Uh, God, would you do that? Uh, We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. For weeks now... um, we, we've been 
going after this, this reality that we desperately need the wisdom of God, that we need eyes to see, as I even just prayed for us uh, just a few seconds ago, that uh, oftentimes we see the land of the living as the land of the dead and vice versa, that oftentimes we see sin in technicolor and we see Christianity in grayscale. And so we desperately need God's wisdom. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, that it's not offered to the proud. It's not offered to the scoffer. It's not offered to the, the unteachable, the easily offended, the impossible to correct. It's offered to the humble to the teachable, to those who understand that they have not yet arrived. Um, And and so none of the stuff that we've been talking about for weeks now matters if we can't pin down the very thing that we're going to talk about this morning, which is humility. Maybe we should have started with this one rather than bring it on the back end as a bookend. But the reality is everything that we've been talking about for weeks all comes under the banner of the topic that we're going to talk about this morning. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12 says this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James chapter four, verse six says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That the way up is down, that what you think is true of God is actually quite the opposite oftentimes. You, you wanna keep your life? Lose it for my sake in the gospels, Jesus says. You wanna be a somebody? Become a nobody. You want the crown of glory? Sell everything that you have, Jesus says. That's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. And and so uh, for the next few minutes, we're gonna talk about the the contrast between um, pride and humility. We're gonna talk about how Lady Wisdom invites us to dine at her table and to taste of the sweetness of humility going back to week one where we drew out that, that contrast, that word picture of Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom inviting us into their houses to dine at their tables. Lady Wisdom invites us to taste of the sweetness of humility, while Lady Folly invites us to taste of the bitterness of pride. And so we want to talk about both of these things. We're going to start with pride. And, and I just uh, even prayed this to God just a, a minute ago, that we, we can't possibly uh, exhaust this topic this morning. It does. It goes back to before our first parents, Adam and Eve, entered into this story. It's, it's the very sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. Uh, we do see it in the garden. It's the reason that Adam and Eve partook of, of the fruit of the tree, the, the idea that they could be like God. It's why we see uh, man seeking to build a stairway to heaven in the story of Babel and, and so, on, so forth and so on. It just continues on throughout the scriptures from start to finish. For us to unpack a biblical theology of pride and humility might quite possibly take us an entire sermon series, and and maybe we'll dig a little deeper and do that at some point. Um, We can't say everything about pride and humility this morning, but there are some things that we can say, and and these are things that I think are critical for us to address this morning. So I'm just going to walk us through a few things having to do with pride first, and then we'll move into humility. Number one, pride is vile, and we intuitively know it. I mean, Let's be honest, when you see a person who's full of themselves, don't you want to bring them down a peg or two? Or, or at least have someone else bring them down a peg or two, and you just get to set up a lawn chair and watch it like fireworks on the 4th of July, right? There's something vile about it. Um, when we see somebody on the flip side exhibiting humility, aren't those the very people that we want to champion and make much of? I mean, isn't that strange that uh, those who lift others up are the very ones that you want to, to lift up? 
there's something intuitive within our nature that, that notices and understands the contrast between pride and humility. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes pride in his great work, Mere Christianity. He says this. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice of pride, Lewis says. He goes on to say this, and at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about, Lewis says, is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. We have an intuitive understanding that pride is vile, and yet it's likely the very vice that we're most blind to in our own lives, which is why it's so devastating and destructive to live out an it's-just-me-and-Jesus isolationist form of Christianity. Secondly, pride and the knowledge of God cannot simultaneously coexist. Say that again. Pride and the knowledge of God cannot simultaneously coexist. Proverbs 1.7, we looked at this verse back in week one of this series. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That fear of the Lord, I've said this every week now to try to give us this picture that we can grab hold of culturally. Fear of the Lord comes uh, when we see Jesus like Peter saw Aslan in the Lion, the Witch, in in the Wardrobe, where he says, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. I love him. I've got to be close to him. I've got to draw near to him. I've got to wrap my arms around his bushy mane, even though it terrifies me at the thought. It creates a reverence and humility in me because he's the king and I'm not that it's really hard to see the king who sits on his throne superior above us when we're looking down our noses at others below us. Again, coming back to Lewis, he says it this way. He says, in God, you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That pride and true intimate knowledge of God cannot simultaneously coexist. As we look down, we cannot simultaneously look up to see God. Number three, pride is the prerequisite to destruction. Say that again. Pride is the prerequisite to destruction, or maybe a more familiar way that you've heard it before. Pride comes before the fall. That's actually a biblical statement. If you go to Proverbs 18.12, which is where I had you open up just a moment ago, it says this, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility leads to honor. Humility comes before honor. Going back to 1 Corinthians, which we spent much of last year unpacking if you were around then, Paul talks to the the Christians in Corinth about this danger of being puffed up. 
When you hear that word, that word translated as the phrase puffed up, it comes from the Greek word uh, fusiao. It literally means overinflated, bloated, swollen. There's no medicine for that, by the way. It conveys the idea of being filled up with so much air that you just might burst. Think of a balloon. When you put air into a balloon, there comes a point where uh, one more breath just might cause the whole thing to, to explode, right? The human ego, you might say, is like air filling up the balloon of your being. That the more we, we become full of ourselves, the more empty we actually become and the closer we get to our own destruction, And then the last thing that I would say about pride is this, that pride is enslavement. It's bondage to the fragile human ego. I went back last week, and and I would encourage you to to read this. It's a really short read, um, less than 100 pages. The book's only maybe uh, the size of the biggest iPhone that's out now. It's entitled The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. And and Keller... um, In this book, he makes a great observation that um, oftentimes we only notice our body parts when there's something something wrong with them. When our attention uh, gets directed to them, it's oftentimes because they're not working as they should. Um, A little over a week ago, I was trying to get Lanier, our oldest daughter, out of the car, and I slammed the car door right into my kneecap. And, And I can promise you, for months leading up to that moment, maybe even years, I was not very attentive to my right knee. I didn't walk around thinking about my right knee on any given day. My right knee didn't come into my thought process by the hour, by the moment. And all of a sudden, for the last week, I've been thinking intensely about my right knee moment by moment as I get up to go uh, grab a cup of coffee or pick up one of the girls or uh, walk the zoo as we did yesterday. My right knee is on my brain all the time. It's how we work. Um, Whenever things don't work properly, we begin to notice them the more and more. The reason, as far as the human ego goes, that we're always uh, constantly seeking validation is because the human ego is broken. Keller says this in that book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says, the ego often hurts. That is because it has something incredibly wrong with it, something unbelievably wrong with it. It is always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day. It is always making us think about how we look and how we're treated. Think about it. He goes on to say, it is very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on ourselves. That is because there's something wrong with my ego. There is something wrong with my identity. There is something wrong with my sense of self. It is never happy. It is always drawing attention to itself. Maybe, maybe you can relate to that. I know I can. What a, what a miserable life of bondage, if you really think about it, to always be fixated on self. Madonna, in an interview with Vogue magazine several years back, said the following, quote, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. This is Madonna talking. That is always pushing me, she says. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. What a miserable way to live. 
Can you imagine a life where the gospel so shapes your identity that you're able to experience true freedom from bondage to your fragile ego? I mean, talk about a vision for your life, right? Imagine what this week could look like if God freed you by the power of the gospel from that kind of bondage. True freedom uh, from always looking for validation around the next corner and the next corner and the next corner. So what about humility? Because that just sounds miserable, right? Is there something that contrasts that that's better? Yes, there is. Lady Wisdom invites us to sit at her table and to taste of the sweetness of humility in contrast to pride. What can we say about humility? Again, we we can't exhaust this topic in the time that we have this morning, but there are some things that the book of Proverbs tells us about this idea of humility, namely that humility reveres, humility listens, humility confesses, and humility forsakes. Let me take you to some verses that unpack what I mean there. Number one, humility reveres the word of God. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 13 says it this way. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. That humility doesn't rip pages out of the scriptures, nor does humility add pages to the scriptures. Humility bends its knee and comes under the authority of the scriptures, which is very different from pride, which stands over the scriptures as the supreme authority. In other words, pride takes the scriptures and bases interpretation on one's circumstances, right? Have you ever been guilty of doing this? Well, I experienced this, and I come to the Bible, and it tells me something very different, and so my experience must be inerrant and true. It's very arrogant, right? It it assumes that supreme authority lies within me rather than within God's revelation of himself, Humility takes one's circumstances and interprets them based on the scriptures, bringing that experience to bear under the authority of God's revelation of himself. Humility reveres the word of God, Proverbs says. Secondly, humility listens to correction. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 31 says it this way. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. That humility doesn't look for ways to come out of every conversation appearing infallible. Humility doesn't constantly seek to explain things away. Humility doesn't blame shift like Adam and Eve in the garden. It was her fault. Well, it was the serpent's fault. You know, just whoever I can put it off on so it's not on me. There's an element of pride that assumes that the problem is always out there somewhere rather than in here. It's never in here. Humility doesn't think or talk more highly of oneself than than he or she ought to. Rather, humility knows that the rabbit hole of depravity goes much deeper than we could possibly dream that it goes. And therefore, humility says, I need other Christians around me desperately. I know that I have not arrived So please come around me, help me to see where conformity to the image of Jesus is absent in my life. That's how humility talks. Humility listens to correction, which means an invitation to have others speak into our lives. And lastly, humility confesses and forsakes sin. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 says it this way. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That humility doesn't hide behind dozens and dozens of layers like an onion 
Is that not the culture that we live in? You gotta peel back 18 layers to figure out who the real person is underneath. We walk behind this sort of mask that we put on, like the Pharisees, we play pretend, we play act. Humility knows that there's power in confessing our sins, both one to another and to God, that it's in our honesty with God and one another that we experience true mercy and true grace in our lives. Pride says no one will ever know the real me, which is the anti-gospel of Jesus plus fig leaves, if you go back to the story in the garden in Genesis 3, as opposed to the true gospel of Christ alone. Pride says no one will ever know the real me. Humility says the cross of Christ affords me the opportunity to put the fig leaves down. I can truly be known. I can know others. I can experience growth in the gospel in the midst of transparency, in the midst of vulnerability. That's the culture that we're trying to create as a church here. Humility says others will know my sin and will help me to fight it for God's glory and my joy. It's just gonna happen. So the question becomes, how in the world can we find humility? How do we find it? Well, there are two ways to ensure that you will never find humility, namely religion and irreligion. Religion, or we could call it moralism, says I trust in my own ability to obey God and be accepted by him. Irreligion or relativism says I decide my own truth and meaning in this world apart from God, outside of God. And so in other words, irreligion says I'm the final authority on matters of truth. There's no humility in that, right? That's just a deifying of yourself. That's basically you making your own autonomous reason the God of the universe. Meanwhile, religion says, I can make the cut. I'm capable of impressing God. And, and let's be honest, we, we don't walk around talking like that, right? We can pick that out in a lineup. Someone talks like that, and immediately we want to bring them down a peg or two. We, we don't walk around saying, I think I can actually impress God. We just live as though that were true. It's why when circumstances in our lives go wrong, we get angry with God. We wave our fists in the face of the Almighty because we believe that we can actually put God in our debt. We believe that we can work hard and cause him to have to look favorably upon us. That's what moralism does. It's why when we're criticized, we get furious. We become devastated because it's critical. It's critical that we think of ourselves as good people. And threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. It's why we find our self-image swinging between the two poles of pride and despair. Pride when we feel like we're living up to God's standard and despair when we feel like we're failing to live up to God's standard. And, and, and let me just hit pause here for a second and be very clear that both of those are forms of pride. You might go, how, how in the world is despair a form of, of pride? It's a more subtle form of pride, but what it says is this. There's, there's a limit to the power of the blood of Jesus. Je Jesus' blood is powerful enough to cover this sin and that sin, this, this particular area of unbelief in my life or that particular area of unbelief in my life, but there is a limit on the power of the blood of Christ. And, and we become all, all of a sudden the deity who determines the power of Jesus to forgive and save sinners. It's a more subtle form of pride. Moralism is why we look down on those who we perceive as lazy or immoral. We have to do that because uh, our identities are based on our own goodness, and, and we can't get there if we look at holy God, so we've got to compare ourselves to other people. 
and see them as less than, than ourselves. Religion says if I obey, God will love me. If I do enough good, then God will be impressed with me, and he'll come over and ask me to sit at his lunch table and be his friend. We talked about it last week. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a miserable way to live, trying to impress God and everyone else around us, is it not? It's like a bad car accident. We're just drawn to live that way for whatever ridiculous reason. And living that way will turn us into proud, arrogant human beings when we think we've achieved it. And guess what? Here's the reality. We still lose because pride is a sin too. It's a sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven, and it just might get you cuts in the line to hell. Here's what Ray Ortland Jr. says in his commentary on the book of Proverbs. He says, do you know who ends up in hell? Everyone who sincerely believes he deserves heaven. Do you know who ends up in heaven? Everyone who sincerely believes he deserves hell, but is saying to Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Religion and irreligion, moralism and relativism are two ways to ensure that you will never find humility. Our only hope for humility is what? Talk about it every week. You know where I'm going here if you've been around long enough. The gospel, right? The gospel reveals to us the heart of God, the humility of God. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is Philippians chapter two, where we see God, the the God of the universe, eternal God condescending to take on human flesh, one of the most humble acts in all of human history. Uh, Philippians two, beginning in verse three says this, Do nothing, Paul says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. There you go. There's the imperative. Be humble. Walk in humility. And and Paul goes on to say, here's how which is yours, he says, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that Jesus added humanity to his deity as he entered into the slums of human history. Paul goes on to say, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the, the Persians invented crucifixions. Uh, the, the Romans perfected it um, as a way of exacting the, the, the most pain out of a human being you possibly could, as, as a way of creating uh, the most shameful form of death that you possibly could, uh, a death hum- humiliated in front of everyone in the public square, lasting hours upon hours oftentimes. That's the humility of God, and therefore... Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel reveals to us the heart of God. The gospel reveals to us the humility of God. I I love this quote from Bruce Shelley. He says this, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. You ever thought about that? Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the center of human history. 
What is God doing? Right? You've got an opportunity to create the biggest bang at the climax of the story and you humiliate yourself? The gospel reveals to us a God who would stoop down and enter the slums of human history. That's your God, Christian. The gospel reveals to us a God who would die the most humiliating of deaths in the public square. That's your God, Christian. Humility finds its origin in the very character and being of God. And the reality is uh, that there's a reason that we see this in the story of human history. It's because we couldn't claw ourselves to God. We couldn't claw our way back to him. We couldn't do enough good to impress him, to cause him to come over and tap us and ask us to sit at his lunch table. The gospel tells me that I'm so sinful that Jesus had to die for me. That's incredibly uh, humbling, is it not? That no matter how hard we try, we cannot impress God with our moralistic efforts. So thanks be to God that Jesus condescended and lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live. Thanks be to God that Jesus died a criminal's death in the public square on our behalf. Jesus was counted proud so that we, the proud, might be counted humble. That's what the gospel says. That's good news. That I'm so sinful and proud that Jesus had to die for me, that's incredibly humbling. And yet I'm so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's incredibly encouraging. That's what the gospel creates, confident humility. Confidence in in knowing that Jesus has done everything necessary to secure my redemption. When he said it, it is finished, he meant it. And humility because Jesus has done everything necessary to accomplish my redemption. All we bring to the table is our sin in the empty hands of faith. I love the way, coming back to Lewis, the way he describes humility. Listen to this. He says, humility is feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which uh, has made you restless and unhappy all your life. Wouldn't you like to live that kind of life? Only the gospel can do that. It's time to lose our foolish egos for the glory of God and for our own joy and freedom. See, the the good news is that on the other side of that cross, whatever it is, whatever God might be calling you to die to in terms of, of the broken, fragile ego, the good news is on the other side of that cross is a crown. That's what the gospel tells us as well. On the other side of humility is honor. That's the beauty of the gospel. In a moment, we're gonna take communion We do so here by taking the bread and and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. And if you're not a Christian, I I, I would implore you to look to the cross of Jesus Christ, to ask yourself the question, um, where, where am I coming from? Am I coming from an irreligious bent that says that my own autonomous reason is the God of the universe? Or are you coming more likely here in the Bible Belt from a a religious moralistic bent that says, man, I've been clawing and clawing and clawing, and I can't ever seem to experience confident humility. I just live in the constant ebb and flow of pride and despair, pride when I think I'm achieving it and despair when I realize that I'm not. And it's just a miserable ebb and flow for me. And maybe this morning is, is the moment that you turn to Jesus with nothing more than your sin in the empty hands of faith and say, Save me, Jesus, a sinner. 
I have nothing more to bring to you than my sin in the empty hands of faith and, and that you would take communion with us as a member of the family of God for the first time. And if you're not a Christian, that is my prayer for you because either of those two other inroads is bondage. It's a miserable way to live. And if you're a Christian, let's be honest, it's called progressive sanctification for a reason, right? God's gonna continue to grow us in this until we die or until Jesus returns. And so my guess is that you've experienced the death of your ego in certain ways thus far, but God still has a great work to do in your life. So the question becomes, where does the the next step of death need to take place as it pertains to, to your ego? How might God be calling you to repent, to set aside the fragile human ego, to set aside that bondage, really, so that you might experience more freedom and joy as a Christian? What might that look like? That's what we want to engage even this week in our community groups. What, what does it look like to take a next step? And, and let, me, let me encourage you and challenge you to press in this week rather than retreat and go, man, this is the week I think I'm going to be absent from community group because we're talking about pride and humility, and that sounds miserable to me. Let, let me just tell you, when you do that, you function as an enemy of your own joy because all that does is, is allow you to continue to walk in that bondage to the fragile human ego that we were talking about just a few minutes ago. If ever there was a time to press in for the sake of your own joy, don't become the greatest enemy of your own joy this week as we engage this stuff. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.